I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Andy Murray, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph and with Eurosport, and myself, David Law, from BBC Radio 5 Live, joined by Catherine Whitaker from Eurosport inside the Eurosport green room, but it is deserted aside from Lucy, the producer, who is here waving at the moment here on the tennis podcast. Just us and a bit of Chris Bradnam commentary in the background on the tennis that's come today. And Catherine, we have had one heck of a day today. Uh, I think one, one of the days that we will probably remember for the rest of our tennis supporting lives and I'm sure all of you listening to this will as well. I mean, maybe maybe Roger Federer and Venus Williams and Serena Williams are not your favourite players. Maybe they are. But nobody can argue with the, the significance of today. And let's take it in reverse order. Roger Federer beating Stan Wawrinka in five sets. I mean, it was, it was a stunning three hours. I mean, pretty quick in terms of the sets. But goodness me, it felt like a big deal to that, did it? It really did felt like a big deal uh i mean was as big a deal <laughs> as you can get on a tennis court really i mean i i very rarely get nervous about recording a tennis podcast because it's just you know having a chat to david law about tennis but the the task of trying to uh sum up with mere words uh, what took place today and what is going to take place over the the weekend is a formidable one really and i doubt <laughs> i doubt whether i'm up to it because uh Almost exactly like Roger Federer's celebration upon winning in that fifth set, I was stood in front of the big screen wondering whether we'd get... I was sort of charting, going back through the various celebrations we saw after the third-round victory against Burdick and after the fourth-round victory over Nishikori. And then I suppose it dialed back a bit after the victory over Misha Zverev. And I wonder, I thought maybe we'll get just this enormous outpouring of emotion and of course if he's going to cry I'm going to cry and then I've got to go on the telly and oh goodness me uh, but it was almost too much it, it seemed like it was too much for him to react that way and, and in fact it was sort of he was dazzled by it all himself and that's a bit how I feel I'm delighted it was it was as wonderful a battle as it was I'm gutted for Stan I, I think he's a wonderful player to have in our sport uh but federer fan or not and i do completely accept that not everyone is uh i think i also genuinely believe most are but each to their own not everybody is but if you're a tennis fan if you're a genuine tennis fan you cannot not celebrate the story of roger federer reaching the final here because it is one of the best 
the sport has ever seen. And that's just reaching the final, so so goodness it, it, It's movie-like, really, is, is how I thought as it was going along. The, the, way, the way this has happened, six months out of the sport, I, I had the privilege of commentating on that fifth set uh, on the radio and, you know, trying to, trying to sum it up or put it into perspective. I mean, I have no idea if I did, did that accurately or fairly or, or did it justice or not. But in terms of that that moment it was it was right up there in terms of significant moments that i certainly commentated on in in 15 years i think andy murray reaching world number one was an enormous moment at the end of last year but historically and and bear in mind what andy roddick said a couple of days ago on this show about you know this is the most significant final in in the history of the sport in possibly if federer plays nadal given what's on the line, Grand Slam titles was. Even putting that aside, the fact that the guy has not reached the final here for seven years, the fact that he has been out of the game for six months, and who knows how how close he was to to maybe not being able to get over that knee injury. You know, it could have been too serious. Fortunately for him, it wasn't. But to come straight back out again and go all the way. I mean, OK, I feel like, yes, to some degree, the... the uh, the fortunes have to favour in, in, in a way, and, and, and you know he, it, it happens to have happened when Novak Djokovic is suffering a slump, Andy Murray is suffering a slump. Uh, but that's sport, that is sport, and he's managed to come out and play brilliant tennis and take advantage. And here he is in the final, and you know it's on now. It, it, and if we were to think back a few podcasts ago. We had this discussion. We've had it probably for the last 18 months, and I really don't think that we thought he was going to win another one. I really don't. Hang on, I've said all along that he would win another one. In the last year? Yeah, I've stood, I've stood by it, yeah. I, I, I've sounded less confident about it, but I've not, revert, I've not done an about turn. You and your he'll take our breath away one last time. I said that, yeah, but I said that, I said that about five years ago when he was really struggling. And even you were sort of, sort of looking at me as if to say, oh, I hope no, you're no. Right. I made, I said, you put me on the spot and said, will he win another slam? I said yes, and I've stood by it ever since. He still might not. I don't know. Uh, but you're going to say, oh, he's taken our breath away, hasn't he? He's taken our breath away. Oh, but you know what? The very first thing uh, that that Lucy and I recorded here at the Australian Open on camera was a, uh, a piece to camera with, with Mark Petchy uh, giving his thoughts generally on the tournament and I asked him about Roger Federer and I put him on the spot and I said, can he win? And he was really punchy. He said, no, he can't win. And I, I don't say that to make Mark Petchy look a fool because I don't think he does look a fool because I don't think Roger Federer thought he could win for a moment, you know. And if Federer didn't think he could win, and I think it's safe to say Federer's always been pretty confident in his abilities over the years, then why should the likes of us think he could win? I, I thought he had no chance at the start of this tournament. And particularly when he played those first two rounds, I thought, no way, no way. I, did, I remember having a conversation with Russell Fuller on the air about the, the Burdick match, and we were sort of weighing it up. And I said, I, I think he can win this one. If, because I do feel like at some point Federer is going to soon make us just, just remember how great he is. He will, re- he will give us a reminder. I didn't think that that would extend to reaching the final of this tournament, not for a minute. I felt like going into this one, he was cap- still capable of winning any given match on his day. I still felt like in any one night or day, he could produce 
tennis to beat anyone. I just didn't think he could do it seven times in a row. He still hasn't done it seven times in a row. He's done it six times in a row. But that was what I what I doubted. And I know it's so fantastically corny, but if it is a Federer Nadal final, that is a victory in itself. And Federer said as much. I mean, he was. The facts are that he has probably five times the chance of winning if it's Dimitrov in the final. That's the way I see it. Uh, and it, I think he wants to play Nadal in the final. And, and the, because and he's happens. a tennis fan. Because yeah, he's and, a tennis fan, and I love that. I, I remember being at the ATP finals in 2000 in Lisbon when Andre Agassi reached the final. And it was going to be either Gustavo Kurt or Pete Sampras that he would face. And he was asked, who do you want to face in the final? And he said, me and Pete Sampras have just been doing this too long. I want to play Pete Sampras. That's meant to be. That's, that's who we are. That's what, and he didn't. In the end, Curtin reached the final and Curtin won the final and he was fantastic. But these sort of people share a bond that we will never know. Normal human beings who don't play sport at that level and have never had a rivalry like that. That's why these players, even if they've been on the end, wrong end of a rivalry, talking to Roddick about this, he doesn't mind the fact that he got dominated by Roger Federer throughout his career. He shared that rivalry. He was part of that. He was defined by that. He knows that. He was defined by the fact that he had his career while Roger Federer had his career. So that meant something to him. The same is true of John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg. They talk about each other with such affection. I know Agassi and Sampras have had their moments and fallen out, but they would not be the same without each other. Their careers would not mean as much without each other, and that's how Federer and Nadal feel. Yeah, the rivalry is not only a, a Federer-defining rivalry or a Nadal-defining rivalry. They each know that it's an era-defining rivalry, and that era felt like it was over, and we're, we're having just a little, you know, back-to-the-future moment, which is just wonderful partly because we all know it's only going to be temporary you know we're not going to be saying these words for the French Open or Wimbledon or the US Open uh, so we've just got to enjoy it and I do encourage even if you're not a Federer fan please trust me that this is good for the sport if you're a tennis fan it is good for the sport it really is this is the most magical storyline and yes I do believe the most magical storyline uh, would be Federer and Nadal but Fed playing baby Fed's pretty good as well so we're in as a sport at this Grand Slam and we'll come on to Serena and Venus in a moment we're standing in pretty fine stead I think I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live and you can watch on your phone or on your smart TV in HD. Sounds great. There's genuinely nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere. And can I just sit and watch court shows in Longland all day? You sure can, David. Wherever the stories are, the rivalries emerge and the generations clash, you can watch it all with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Be there when it happens by subscribing to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. We'll preview Nadal against Dimitrov a little bit later in the show. We'll hear from the coach of uh, Grigor Dimitrov, Danny Valverdu, here on the Tennis Podcast. Fascinating to talk to him. Somebody I've, I've, I've known a lot in terms of seeing him around, but I've never really had a chance to talk to him. Found it really interesting to do so. We'll hear from him. But you mentioned the other stories of the day, and it started with Venus Williams reaching the final beating Coco Vanderwey in three sets. Really good match, first of all. That was a highly competitive match. Vanderwey won the first set. Venus, I mean, and she said as much in her post-match press uh, on-court interview, her deliriously happy, uh, ecstatic reaction. But she also said, you know, I had to play really good defense today because this woman was just knocking me off the court, uh, Coco Vanderwey, the way she had been with so many other players. And I think, I mean, her experience was was came to bear in that match yeah absolutely she doesn't always she's so deceptive with how well she moves and covers the court because she doesn't she's not a graceful mover in the way that Roger Federer is or even the way that I mean Serena I think is a more graceful mover she's got these incredibly long limbs and you think there's absolutely no way she's going to be able to to uh to move herself around a tennis court the way she does but suddenly she's just there she's got to the ball you know van der Wey's hitting these huge shots and opening up these angles and, and venus is there and i think her reach at the net is an enormous enormous weapon so few players are on the women's side of the game are as good at the net as i'd like to see you know, i think it's an underexploited <coughs> tactic and weapon in women's tennis frankly but venus is there you know showing showing how useful it can be and yes those long limbs help incredibly her coverage of the net is awesome but yeah so experience her it just her sereneness her serenity throughout the whole match in such stark contrast to her reaction upon winning was incredible i mean i was expecting an outpouring of emotion but her celebration was serena like that's that's what was funny about it. That's how I would expect Serena to... She did that pirouette that Serena does. She does the dancing that Serena sometimes does. That's what struck me about it. Venus is sort of the calm one, the elder statesman, the... OK, just a bit cooler about things, isn't she? Was she? Beside she, was, she was beside herself. She was beside herself, and she was... It was like she was doing a Serena Williams victory impersonation. It was really interesting. And it was, it was really heartwarming, I, I thought, because... You know, she's obviously bottled that up for so long, probably not really allowed herself to imagine that moment too much. And even in the match, you can't, can you? You you sometimes see these cool, calm, collected tennis players and then the moment of victory, you you realise just how much they're having to stay 
focused in the moment and not and not project forward and speaking of focus i understand that serena and venus passed in in not quite the corridor but in the players area as venus was coming off court and serena was about to walk on as she had somehow had to not go over and congratulate her sister had to, she kept the stony face and i'm sure that's exactly what venus would have wanted her to to do and perhaps they'd even discussed how to deal with that moment I've no idea or maybe there's just some sort of unspoken understanding or maybe they've dealt with that so many million times before that doesn't need to be spoken about but I, I just can't imagine being able to maintain that kind of focus your 36 year old sister and I don't want to keep harping on about her age because it's sensational despite the fact she's 36 and I feel sorry for her that everyone keeps hammering the word 36 in her face as if she's some sort of um, pensioner, but the fact is, in tennis terms, that is that she is. <laughs> um, and yeah, I was I, I couldn't believe that when I heard that. I, I assumed that Serena would have known that she had won. There's no way she could have completely blocked out that match and what was happening. But the fact that they caught sight of one another in the corridors, I find just oh, to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's. It's particularly special that this is all happening at the same time. That there's Serena, there's Venus, there's Roger Federer, and there may be even Rafael Nadal. I mean, there's the Bryan brothers. There's the Bryan brothers. Yeah, today I was watching them uh, first thing when I got in today, and that's their tenth Australian Open final, their thirtieth Grand Slam final. They're thirty-eight years of age. I mean, it, it is. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> I don't know. I do want to. I want to speak to someone. I'm sure there'll never be an answer. Did, you know? Did Wimbledon ever confess to deliberately engineering things to slow down the game a bit? I don't know if they have ever have done. But they've, I said, they've never admitted to. It. No, I mean, they, they've, I said, they've always said that that they didn't change anything. But I mean, there was a there was a shift, wasn't there, between 2001 one, and 2002, from when Goran Ivanovic won it, beating. Henman in the semis and then Rafter in the final and the next year you had Leighton Hewitt David Nalbandian and Xavier Melis in the semi-finals and Tim Henman and Tim Henman was playing and he said it was like a pudding you know that comparatively speaking well yeah I, I mean it again it was one of those things where it was just so stark is there a greater contrast between Goran Ivanovic and Leighton Hewitt and it's it's the same here it's such an enormous Contrast. You have to wonder whether... I have no idea. I have no insider knowledge on this at all. I'd like to. I'd like to try and get get a hint from somebody as to whether that's the case. But it's just such a massive thing that I, it's hard to believe that it's not a conscious decision. It's hard, it, it's hard to believe. Cause I'm going to go and hunt down Craig Tiley tomorrow. Like you hunted down Dominic Team and put him... Go yeah. for it, please. Yeah. I did have a good chat with Craig Tyler the other day about um, scheduling of players, um, which was quite interesting. He's a very approachable guy, but I think he's a very good tournament director. And if he has, if he has concocted to, to speed up these courts, it's for the better, in my opinion. And Nadal is still there. You know, he it's, he's proof that you know if you're good enough and you're playing well enough, you can play on anything. But it certainly has aided people's ability to come forward there's no question about it and uh, Serena Williams today we're just watching a few highlights of her at the moment on Eurosport beating Mariana Lucic Baroni the highlights are pretty much the whole match aren't they (laughs) yeah I mean it doesn't take long because Serena has hit that zone now and she hit it against 
Joe Conta. We'll talk more in depth, I think, tomorrow um, ahead of the, the final between the two of them so we can do a proper preview. I think we need to let the thoughts percolate between Venus and Serena. I love the word percolate. Okay, I've said a good word, finally. Oh, good. So that's to come uh, in tomorrow's tennis podcast. But um, Serena Williams, she she does look now the business again. I mean, this is the thing about her and Federer. I mean, to some degree, Venus Williams as well. How are these people in their mid-30s playing like this? I mean, it didn't used to happen. We were, I was talking to somebody today about Pete Sampras, his final tournament. You know, he was 31. And that, I think he was 31, but he, and he felt old, you know? He felt like, like an old tennis player. Physically, he looked older than Roger Federer does right now, and who's he, 35. He dropped way further behind the rest. He was far less of a, a talked-about contender than even Federer was here, coming in as the 17th seed. You know, he'd been through that second-round George Bastel defeat on court two at Wimbledon, and... Yeah, you're right, though. He looked old. You know, these guys don't look old. And I sometimes stop myself and I wonder, is it just because I'm older that this, these people don't, don't look old? But I don't think it is, I think. I mean, obviously... You look the, quite good the, for your age, Catherine. The revolutions in... For your age. That That's when things get bad, when people start tagging for your age onto the end of compliments. That's I don't even get the first bit. <laughs> oh, dear. Um yeah, I mean, obviously, things seem to move on by the week in terms of sort of food science and athletic science and all of that. And I'm sure that plays a part in it. But I also just think these, you know, it's evolution, isn't it? These people push themselves on. It's sort of survival of the fittest. And you just have to be better and get better in order to compete. Do you know, I think the other thing to just mention was we're seeing at the moment the lovely moment where Mirjana Lucic-Baroni takes a selfie of herself in front of the crowd who are going crazy for her, even in defeat. I think the other thing that those three players, Serena Williams, Venus Williams and Roger Federer, share in common is just a deep love of the basics of the sport. They love hitting tennis balls. They love training. They love being out in front of the the crowd and, and the adulation and all that comes with it. Pete Sampras, I was around him a lot in the latter stages of his career. He he had tired of it all. He he was he didn't really want to do it anymore. To be honest, he wanted the records. I think there's a bit of that with Serena. She's desperate for the records. When she's got the records, I'm not sure whether she'll stick to it and, and you know want to carry on even longer or not. But there is a love for the game that is very innocent um, with those three and I think that that is key to longevity I couldn't agree more yeah no I know we're um, you know we have to maintain a certain sort of journalistic impartiality but my sort of expressing being a Federer fan comes from being a tennis fan I think I, I, you know I've made that point already I think I think you've hit the nail on the head they are just they must just love the sport in the absolutely purest form of the sport and you know I made the point about Federer I think after the Hopman Cup he needs tennis as much as tennis needs him he doesn't think he doesn't think he's doing tennis any favours by making the final here he thinks tennis is he thinks tennis is doing him the favours by giving him the opportunity to get to the final here Uh, and that's fantastic so that was today. Uh, now we've got Rafael Nadal against Grigor 
Dimitrov. It's um, it's a battle I enjoy watching. The, the head-to-head is 7-1 in the favour of Rafael Nadal, but Dimitrov's won their most recent match. When they faced each other here three years ago when Dimitrov was starting that run under Roger Rashid, it was four sets. It was really close. He, he could have... He could have taken two sets to one advantage, Dimitrov, that day. I think he's a better player now. I think he's a more complete athlete. And uh, I think he's going to put in a great performance tomorrow. I really do. What do you think? I agree. I don't think he's going to wilt under the spotlight or the occasion. I think he's going to give a really creditable account of himself. I tip Nadal. He's got a very genuine chance. I do tip Nadal. But I don't see the storyline as being ah, Grigor Dimitrov blows the big opportunity. I think he'll play great, but just get outplayed. I think the nice thing about it is that we are at least seeing now the, the Grigor Dimitrov that we hoped one day to see again after two years in the utter wilderness. Now, one of the reasons that he's made this resurgence appears to be his association now with new coach Danny Valverde. We had a chance to speak to Danny ahead of this tennis podcast and ahead of the semi-final and we asked him how he first got together with Grigor when it first started to to become reality and and what exactly happened. We met after he was done in Wimbledon last year, went over to his house and just had a chat about how he was feeling and what his plans were and where his uh, mindset was at the moment and he was just looking for a change and was looking to find some motivation in his tennis and and I had a very honest chat with him and told him my point of view and I'll keep that between the two of us uh, but it's been going great to be honest all credit to him he's been uh, working extremely hard he's uh, very open to uh, to listening not only to me but to the fitness trainer the physio his agents so he's been uh, excellent to work with uh, he does as he's told all the time, so that's uh, that's very nice to have as a coach. Uh, so to be honest, I think the whole team is doing a great job, but he's doing a great job himself at uh, listening to us and um, putting in the hard work. Because every player is different, aren't they? You can't necessarily coach, I imagine, Grigor the way you coached Andy or, or, or Thomas. No, definitely. You need to be open to understanding the player as a person uh, on and off the court. Uh, that's probably the most important part about my job is being able to adjust and, and being able to listen um, to what the player has to say so, so you can adjust to the player it's like you said it's coaching him and or coaching Andy or Thomas is all going to be extremely different and, and I need to be able to adapt my system to him uh, at the same time I need to uh, follow my beliefs and and do what's right from from my side, but it's been it's been great working with him. He's he's very open. Uh, we we connect on many levels when it comes to tennis and, and off the court. So it's been a, it's been a good match from the beginning. I, I fully respect that you don't want to reveal the contents of that conversation. But in terms of getting the best out of him, what what do you think is required? What what has been what has helped to, to get to this point? From the beginning, we we've been focusing on his strengths. Uh, I think that was key to to getting his confidence back and, and getting back to winning matches. We try to keep things as simple as possible on the tennis court, just focusing on his strengths, which are his serve and his forehand and his, and his movement. Uh, so for the first few months, we're only focusing on that. And, and once a player has their weapons working, then you can add a few things around it. We're still working on that. We're in, still in the first stage of the, of the job. And uh, hopefully we can work on some other things in the future. But it's going well for now. Uh, he's, he's accepted the... The process that we're going through and he's uh he's very committed to it so it's it's good for me as well 
Well, he's a charming guy, isn't he, Daniel Valverde? He was he was a little bit shy about doing interviews at all when we when I initially approached him. You know, he was not keen on being in front of the camera particularly. He said, I don't really like doing TV interviews. He was going to speak to me because I've known him a little bit from afar for a while and it was going to be radio and he thought, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And he was going to speak to a few of the press boys. He spoke to you as well for, for Eurosport. But when he speaks, I mean, you know, you're thinking, why are you nervous? I mean, he's so articulate. He's so sort of calm and, and interesting and, and very convincing. I can see why he's a, an effective coach. Oh, he speaks brilliantly well. And as you say, so, so calm. I can completely understand why it's working with Grigor. He's got... I can imagine him... When he was with Andy Murray, I couldn't quite imagine him, you know, being stern when required. And the fact that he brought Lendl into the into the team suggested, you know, Danny was there for the, the arm around the shoulder and then was, Lendl was there for the, the stern talking to. I suspect now he's sort of stepped up to that senior coach, coaching role. He's better able to tread the line and and can do both um but it it seems to be more about the arm around the shoulder and the the i mean everybody talks about it doesn't it with Grigor? he can play every single shot he he had he's he's had too much at his disposal for for so long and i think that's something that people don't talk about enough with Federer his problem solving on the court he problem solved that match today he was in serious trouble Vavrinka was the massive favourite in that fifth set and Federer had to change things to get the better of Vavrinka and even in you know these early stages of that fifth set I I totally thought he was going to lose it and he had to change his tactics considerably in order to do it and that that mental aptitude for the sport is tennis intelligence is sort of too puerile a way of putting it but just knowing your game and knowing how to apply it and all of that Dimitrov has lacked that and uh, somehow Danny Velvedu seems to be helping him with that I think it's partly the emotional comfort side of things and partly partly a, um, a tactical awareness but it's working it's really really working I think the other thing is he's he's figured out some straightforward patterns of play for Grigor Dimitrov to win points. You know, these are your go-to patterns. If things aren't going well, this is what you do. You do A or you do B or you do C. You don't just faff around doing A, P, Q, whatever else you might be able to throw at a board. Which all the top players have. I mean, yes, Federer can produce tweener lob winners, but most of the time you're serving a, four, uh, serving a big serve and hitting it into out forehand winner. That's... That, that's how he wins the majority of his points on service games so that's absolutely the way to go talking about problem solving did you like the little arrogant text I sent you just after match point when I said I picked the moment mid-rally that I saw the momentum changing in Federer of Vavrinka did you yeah, like that? it was deeply modest <laughs> did, you also, did you also say on air that this whole Federer run started with a long chat with David Law in the, in the player garden I didn't say that, but remind me. It could have been one of those, um, what do they call it, butterfly flapping wings moments, you know, a small a small human incident affecting the course of history. That, the butterfly effect, yes, weird rubbish movie with Aaron, uh, Ashton Kutcher. Um, the, that chat with David Law has affected the course of sporting history forevermore. Yeah, quite right.
Right. I was also thinking about uh, 2003, my first ever Australian Open. It's all about David Law it's now. Definitely it's not about, about Roger Federer, it's oh, about yeah. David Law. Forget him. I mean, you know, he, he, I, I'm responsible for him, as simple as that. <laughs> uh, t- 2003, um, I found a photo of myself interviewing Andre Agassi when I didn't have grey hair, when I had brown hair. And uh, I look about 12. Um, and at that point, the, w- what's significant for the story is that that was my first year here, and that was the last time Serena played Venus, the only time they've played each other in the final. Roger Federer had not yet won a Grand Slam. He lost in the fourth round to um, David Nalbandian. Andy Murray, Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal were children. And, uh, so was I. Just Don't rub it in. I mean, you've already sort of insulted my age, so I just thought I'd get that in there. Well... Um, yeah, and and I looked a bit younger than I do now as well. But anyway, um, a smaller side. I mean, this the, there's too many stats and facts. There's just there's too many now. I know. Yesterday I was saying I want these things to happen because I've got all these great stats about ages and stuff. There's there's just too much now. There's too much history being made. Too much throwback. Too, too many mind-boggling stats being thrown out there. You're going to be able to pro- handle this or can't not? Process it all. You've still got two or three days to go. <laughs> and you're going to get through it. I don't know. Come on, you've got to be on the telly tomorrow. And you've got to do tennis podcasts. Three more of those as well, at least. What do you mean, at least? All right, three more <laughs> after this one. Anyway, we haven't finished this one yet. Not doing one on the plane, David. No. We are well, not podcasting on the plane. Your energy might extend to it? that, but mine I wonder if that's doesn't. legal. Are you allowed to podcast on planes? I wonder. You're allowed to Wi-Fi on planes now. I still That feels like, I don't like that. the future. I, like, I, I don't like that. I don't like to be contactable on a plane, do you? Yes, I very much do. I dislike that immensely because that's when I get my year's worth of film watching in. Not sleeping. Heaven forbid, David. No, I don't want to do any of that. Right, anyway, we're talking to sleep. That's what we're going to do right now. The tennis will be back tomorrow, of course. Eurosports coverage of Rafael Nadal against Grigor Dimitrov. It's an evening session match, so it'll be in the morning UK time uh, at uh, seven, 8 o'clock. Catherine showed me with her, her, her eight fingers and thumbs. And uh, we've obviously got BBC Radio. Build, build up with me and Pat Cash. Studio with Annabelle, Greg, Rob Curling. Lucy's saying 8.30. 8 8.30? No, no, 8.30 8 the match. studio coverage. All oh, right, OK. Yeah, anyway, in the morning, when you wake up, stick your telly on and the tennis will be on, right? Uh, and then we've also got that on BBC Radio 5 Live Sports Next. You'll be able to listen to live commentary on there. And we've got the Eurosport player that you can get if you're out and about and you want to watch the match. You've got a year's worth for 19.99. You get, get the other slams. I mean, come on. Brilliant. And uh, we've also got Simon Briggs in the Telegraph who's going to... Lucy just fist pumped. He's going to write all this stuff. Uh, Simon Briggs is going to write all these articles and Oliver Brown's in town as well. He's the feature sports writer. Yeah, I tell you. See, that tells you what a big story Federer reaching the final is. Yeah, it's a big deal, I'll tell you. I mean, that that does tell you something, doesn't it? Because usually it would only be for a Murray reaching the final or or Conta that extra British staff would be sent in from a British paper. Yeah, it's a big, big old story. Big old story, this. I hope you're enjoying it. We certainly are. And we'll be back with another tennis podcast tomorrow. Stay well. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.